Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Lawrence Coletti. And I'm Elisa Massimino. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. back. So we're closing out our coverage of ABA annual meetings, our last interview before we uh, jump on our plane and get out of here and go on to the next event. But it has been an absolutely tremendous annual meeting. I met a lot of really great people and uh, the staff at the ABA is tremendous. It's just unbelievable showing today. So if you haven't had a chance, check out the other episodes. They're really, really awesome. I think you'll be really impressed with the guest lineup. And speaking of impressive guest lineup, I have Elisa Masamino. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So before we get started, I want to get your bio. Let's get that going. And so where do you work? What do you do? I spent the last 27 years working for an organization called Human Rights First. It's a nonprofit, non-governmental organization whose mission is to get the United States to be a global leader on human rights. I stepped down from being the president and CEO of that one month ago. Wow. And now I'm a senior fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School at Harvard. So uh, the name of your presentation, a session, speaking session was International Human Rights, Law and Policy in the Trump Administration. And so lots going on in there. And uh, so every time we hear the Trump administration, we we look because, uh, to be honest with you, anything with Trump seems to do very well in our network. People tune in. They want to figure out what's going on. Uh, he tends to cause a reaction of sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But uh, let's get into Give me the 50,000 foot. Well, the question was, you know, how are human rights bearing under the Trump administration? And I guess the big picture is that, you know, the president campaigned on this idea of America first, which if you go back to kind of the beginning of the human rights idea uh, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was uh, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year, the idea was that countries do better when everyone respects human rights. So you would think that America first would mean, you know, if we want to put our country first, that means we join with other countries to protect human rights. That was the lesson after World War II. If we don't want to ever have that happen again, the way to do that is to cooperate and make sure everybody respects human rights. So Trump doesn't believe that. And his policies are grounded in this idea that we don't benefit from the you know, what some people call the liberal global rules-based world order that the United States did so much to help create, that that's no longer beneficial for the United States. And because of that, you know, the administration is less interested in treaties and cooperating with other countries um, to help solve global problems. So that that's kind of the big picture. And there was a fair amount of consensus around that view. And then we got to talking about the details. What does that really mean in practice? And uh, what does it mean for U.S. policy and U.S. leadership? And then what does it mean for real people? So let's let's uh, let's get into the, some of the specifics. So you and I were doing a little pregame, and, and as we both uh, know, presidents have to deal with a lot of international problems. And it seems like no matter what times we live in, it's kind of like that Billy Joel song, "We Didn't Start the Fire." There's always something going on in the terms of, uh, of in the terms of human rights. And so let's get into the the specifics. So what has specifically changed? To continue the Billy Joel analogy, for sure, there were a lot of human rights problems. And, you know, as a person who's worked on these issues in in Washington for 30 years, 
you know, I've had my differences, let's say, with lots of different uh, administrations, Democratic, Republican, um, and, you know, always trying to get the U.S. to live up to its human rights ideals. So this administration didn't start the fire on a lot of the issues that we care about, but it has thrown gasoline on, on some of them. Um, and one has been the refugee uh, crisis, the global refugee crisis, and the way that the U.S. has been treating immigrants. We spent a lot of time at the panel talking about this, and we had an, another expert on the panel who's from Chicago, Mary Meg McCarthy, whose specialty is immigration and refugee issues. But I've spent a lot of my career working on that, too, and we're seeing some very big changes in that area under the Trump administration, uh, specifically some that that violate international human rights obligations. Such as? So the two that I would kind of highlight, because they have gotten less press than some of the other things, like the Muslim ban and the family separation policy, are turning people back at the border, people who show up and ask for protection and are told, basically, we're not open anymore for that. That's illegal, um, but there are documented cases of it happening the strategy seems to be to deter people from coming, hoping the word will spread that, you know, don't come looking for help to the United States. And then the other is criminal prosecution of people who are coming here seeking asylum. That has not happened at ports of entry under previous administrations. In the past, they used this law to prosecute people who entered the United States in between ports of entry. So, But we're having lots and lots of people who are showing up at you know, and presenting themselves to border patrol officials at the border saying, I need help, and being told, we'll talk about that after we prosecute you for illegal entry. So that that is another big change that's really sending a message, not just to the people who are seeking safety into the United States, but around the world. We're in a situation now where it's the largest refugee crisis on record since World War II. More people are being displaced from their homes by war, violence, persecution than have ever been recorded. And in situations like that, that's one of these global problems that can't be solved by any one country, including ours. It has to be solved in cooperation with others. But as is often the case with lots of issues, people around the world, even U.S. allies, what they want to know first is what's the U.S. going to do. The U.S., for better or worse, is the leader. And when it uh, leads in a negative direction, that has kind of a downward spiral effect. And it means that other countries are going to kind of use that as cover for why they aren't going to abide by their obligations either. So it becomes this kind of negative spiral um, race to the bottom. And we see that for sure on the refugee issue, and it's happened in some other areas too. So, I mean, obviously I've been following this in the news. It's, uh, you know, definitely an issue on my mind. Um, you know, I've immigrants in my family and, you know, definitely following it. And one of the things I think that upsets me a lot is media coverage on it that is so hyperbolic one way, hyperbolic the other way on it. And so you can literally figure out who stands on what issue by what network you're, you're watching. And I, I try to counteract that by doing a lot of my own independent reading, my own independent research. I try to get the truth. And so one of the things that, uh, and this is a question, I'm just asking this because I don't know, my understanding based on some of the media covers that I've seen is that in terms of some of the family separation issues, uh, some of these people are coming, but they're not going to a port of entry and declaring or asking for asylum. They're coming across the border and border patrols catching them between one of the ports of entry. And so that's what's triggering a lot of these um, separations of family because now they got to 
put the parents in one. They got to put the kids, which I mean is horrible and scary, but they got to put the kids in the other. And so what is, um, in terms of some statistics you could share with our listeners, what's the real facts there? So in some respects, you're right in that people who cross between ports of entry uh, are being prosecuted. But we're also, as I said before, it's not limited to that. So, So if you think about what kinds of incentives you want to create with your policies, what you want to do is to encourage people to cross at ports of entry. First of all, it's safer. Right. Right. But it's also more orderly. And, you know, every country has the right to have its borders, you know, policed in an orderly way. But what we also know is that the experience of being a refugee, having to flee for your life, is an inherently disorderly process. So you also have to account for that somehow in your laws and policies. I mean, what happens when people are fleeing, a lot of the people who are coming are coming through Mexico, coming from Central America, where the violence is really terrible. Right. Um, Cartels and... There's drug violence, gang violence, domestic violence, and political violence. It's like a perfect storm of really some terrible things that people are, you know, maybe they've had one or two of their children already killed and they're running with the last child to try to save them. And as anybody who has a kid or even doesn't and can imagine, you know, if it were yours, that's what you'd do. You would just pick up that kid and you would do whatever it takes and run. Um, Often what they need to do is pay some smuggler, some coyote to help them figure out how you get there. And, and those people often leave them in between ports of entry. So people are wandering, they don't know where they are, and they certainly don't know what the process is. They just know they're trying to save themselves and their kids. So, you know, what we have to do in this country is balance the, both our obligations to respect the Refugee Convention and our own laws by not turning people back who are seeking protection, but also make sure that our laws and policies contemplate what is an inherently chaotic process of people fleeing for their lives. And we have done a pretty good job of that in the past. I mean, yes, there'll be times when I will, you know, criticize the overuse of detention as a waste of taxpayer resources. But, you know, we're seeing now a accumulation of policies that are really, they seem to be designed to send a message, don't come here, no matter what, don't come here. And that message reverberates around the world, not just to people who might want to flee to the U.S. to seek protection, but also to other governments who are thinking, well, hey, I'm going to close my borders too. And once everybody becomes that fortress, then what happens is the most vulnerable people in the world whose rights aren't protected in their own countries um, have nowhere to go. And that is a security threat. You know, people often think about national security and immigration as how do we keep bad people from coming into our country, which is an important thing right, that government think, has um, to do, right? Focusing on diseases that uh, countries yeah. haven't seen in a long time, I think, is also some of the things I remember uh, hearing from the old days. You know, people go to, you know, Ellis Island, be in quarantine, and they try to make sure that someone was healthy before they, uh, they admit them. But I'm sorry, but, I didn't you know, terrorism it. and crime and that kind of thing. People usually think about the national security implications of immigration in that way. And that is one important uh, aspect of it. But what most people don't realize is failure to address the global situation of people fleeing violence also creates a negative national security problem for the United States. So when we can't solve 
the Syrian refugee crisis, when we're bailing out of the UN dialogue about migration and refugee protection, we are forfeiting our leadership role as the United States on solving those problems. And yet we're going to end up being the ones, because we have the most formerly deployed military in the world and people look to us to solve big problems. When those problems get big, like Syria, everybody in the world is going to be looking to us to solve them. And they have implications for our own security. So just getting back to kind of the theme of the panel, which I really saw as, you know, kind of remembering that 70 years ago when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was drafted and adopted, we had a very strong sense that national security and respect for human rights were integrally linked. That you, they're not things to balance against each other. They're actually, you know, you, the best way to secure a country is to ensure that the rest of the world is respecting uh, the human rights of their own people. And that's what we seem to have lost sight of. And it seems that the current administration is pursuing policies that see those things as somehow in conflict. And I think that's a big mistake. I think one of the things that's really difficult about this, I mean, like you said, the, the, the mass migration of people as at the largest amounts that it's been since World War II, and this is the bad, you know, nation states of other places. And, you know, people are trying to flee that. They're trying to flee the violence. And so, I, you know, I think this is a real rock in the hard place for, for uh, the European Union and also the United States because these are good societies to, to live in. You know, I mean, obviously no society is perfect, but people are coming here because it's better than what they have back home. But at some point in that, and this is a question for you, if you had your way, if you were suddenly president, is there, and you sort of look at like how many people can other countries absorb? You know, and that, I think that's a question that's reasonable to ask. And I'm not saying the United States is at its capacity yet or the European Union is at its capacity yet. But at some point, there's a triggering where it's not just about taking everybody in, but also about forward projection. And so do you see as part of, you know, placing some of the people that are, you know, fleeing persecution and murders and, you know, bring them in, but also as part of that strategy to try to make sure that, the migration, because I don't think that's good for any place to have so many people wandering around all over the place all the time, outward projection. Well, actually, you know, um, many societies, including some in the European Union, desperately need new people to come for their economy, and the U.S. does too. There's lots of studies that have shown that immigrants um, are a net plus economically for a country. They have to, you know, countries have to do a good job of managing the integration of people from other places into the, and the U.S. actually has, is one of the better countries at that. We have, in the past at least, and I hope it continues, have had a pretty good track record of people who come here, who want to work hard and succeed, being integrated into our society. But I just want to make a distinction a little bit between people who come as voluntary migrants because they want to opt for a better life, which is great. And that's what my ancestors did when they came from Italy. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of nobility in that people. And in some ways, you know, those are the kind of people you want on your team, right? People who are, you know, chasing a better life for their families. But refugees are different. These are people who can't stay in their own countries and enjoy the fundamental rights that we are all entitled to. And those people then become the responsibility of this non-entity called the international community, which means that other countries have to join together and figure out a system of how do we protect these people. Because if we fail to do that, 
then we're going to have lots of other problems. Or if it's if the burden falls unfairly on one or two countries, then those countries can become unstable, and that creates another problem. So it's not really just about numbers. It's really about what kind of overall world uh, you know, order do we want. And so it also means that the United States needs to be paying attention to the causes of migration and, and particularly of, of refugee flows and thinking about how can, what can we be doing, what should we be doing to address those problems. You know, almost always, if you go back to the root of a refugee crisis, what you'll find is violation of human rights. You know, Syria, that's how that started. You know, the Syrian people weren't seeking to overthrow Assad. They wanted democratic reforms. And the regime responded by killing uh, and imprisoning and torturing some teenage kids who spray-painted an anti-Assad slogan on the wall. And at that point, probably a lot of people looked at that, including from the United States, and said, that doesn't really have anything to do with us. That's how it started. I think uh, the question I was trying to get to is that a lot of this, you know, one of my favorite places, not favorite in because it's fun, but one of the most enlightening places I visited is the Holocaust Museum. And there was a lot of that going on in the preambles of World War II. And there was a lot of civil rights, I mean, or sorry, human rights uh, violations. And it wasn't just those things that, uh, you know, accumulated and, and built up before there was an outward strike. And yep. it's like, but and so that, that was the question I was getting to. I mean, when you start seeing these regions of the world where people are, you know, in, in the case of, of South American nations, they're, they're making a pretty dangerous journey, you know, thousands of miles through some really rough country, and they're risking their lives to get out of there. And then you've got Syria, you've got other nations, um, you know, that are violating these uh, human rights, um, just basic human rights and treating the people horribly. At some point, are we teetering on kind of a global, you know, a little bit more aggressive stance? So instead of, hey, we'll just take all the people you don't want versus, hey, you guys are treating people awful. We need to stop that. At what point does the world step in and say enough is enough? Well, first of all, we've never said we'll take everybody who, you know, our doors are always open. That's never been the case. Refugees in particular go through the strictest vetting system of any immigrants that come to the United States, full stop period. And if we want those flows to be reduced, which nobody wants to be a refugee, right? I mean... No, no, I agree. And I didn't mean to imply that we're trying to take everybody and that we don't... Not even close. And, you know, frankly, most people don't want to come here. They want to stay home like we do. You know, like anybody does. They want to stay where they know the language, have a job, have their families, have their histories. Right. And if possible, they'd like to go back there. So what can we be doing to... I mean, that's part of what we do is urge uh, our own government to be paying attention to those things. Looking at that as a holistic problem and with a holistic solution is really key. But one thing you said about the Holocaust Museum, I think it's it's really important. You know, I think that's an amazing institution. It's in my hometown in in DC. And, you know, one of the lessons that you learn from that museum is that the Holocaust didn't start with killing. It started with words. Right. It started with demonization of people, calling people animals, subhuman. And we see disturbing trends of that here, even in the United States now with this administration. You know, to the extent that you can convince somebody that a group of people is somehow less than human, deserving of fewer rights and protections, that is the step down a pathway that we never want to go down. Uh, so those are the kinds of things we talked about at the panel. 
We also tried to think about some bright spots on human rights for this administration. I'm like chronically uh, addicted to trying to find bright spots, um, which is a little bit unusual for a human rights activist. But, you know, I do think it's important to learn from where things are going well. I mean, one thing that's good with this administration, aside from the fact that it has spawned incredible citizen activism and it's really caused the American bar to step up and defend the rights of people who this administration's uh, violating their rights. But aside from that, this administration actually has done some stuff that I find quite positive on human rights, including implementation of something called the Global Magnitsky Act, which is a piece of legislation with strong bipartisan support that Obama signed right before he left office. And a lot of people thought this isn't going to go anywhere with Trump. But in fact, the Trump administration has used the Global Magnitsky Act, which authorizes the U.S. to impose personal sanctions, financial and travel sanctions, on individual violators of human rights and uh, seriously corrupt actors. And has now done that, I think, going uh, with five or six different tranches of sanctions through the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. And that has really had an important impact. So we're hopeful that that's going to continue. This has been a really enlightening discussion. I think, you know, it's it's definitely interesting. I do worry that we are teetering towards uh, global conflicts. One of the things, you know, you sort of, I, I remember one of the quotes at getting back to the Holocaust Museum, there was a quote on the back, and I can't remember it exactly, but it was by uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And one of the reasons they commissioned the funds to put together the museum was that nobody, the, the worry was that nobody would believe this happened. And it was very, uh, it was very interesting because I went there and I went through the museum. It's a very sobering experience. I recommend it for anybody, obviously not too yeah. young. I think it's a very uh, traumatic thing for young children. But if you're an adult, you should definitely go see it. Uh, it will enlighten you. Um, but when I went there, shortly thereafter, the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, denied the Holocaust. And I thought that was just so, you know, so poignant. Just a few months later, you've got someone denying that the Holocaust happened. And yet, went to the museum, I saw the pictures, and, you know, you listen to the exhibits, and it's absolutely incredible. So I hope the world can find a peaceful conclusion to this. And I hope that, uh, I hope that we can find uh, human rights uh, instead of receding, uh, enhancing. And uh, I just want to give you the last word, uh, Lisa, I really appreciate you stopping by at the end of the day. I know you're getting off to see Hamilton tonight mm-hmm. and uh, speaking of happy things, but uh, I want to give you the, the platform for a couple minutes to uh, kind of summarize what we talked about and uh, some of the important things that we need to be considering as a nation. Well, I guess what I would say, just to summarize what we talked about at the panel and really the question on the table, which was, you know, how is human rights faring under the Trump administration? I I think that one of the things that we, that a lot of us have experienced through these last, whatever, 500 days of, of this administration is that, you know, the rights that we take for granted as fundamental to our democracy are rights that we you have to fight for every day and be vigilant about. And that, that's obviously something that lawyers play a central role in doing. Um, I've been really, really encouraged by the level of activism that I see across the country, in particular among young people, who are taking responsibility for helping to shape the future of our country. I find it really inspiring. Um, and, you know, as the mom of three uh, kids in, in that age group, uh, 19 to 24, it gives me great hope. 
Excellent. So just one last question for you. If our listeners want to reach out, how can they find you? They can find me at Elisa underscore Massimino at hks.harvard.edu. Excellent. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guest, Elisa, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's great being here. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Uh